Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Uh, I think one of the most striking eyewitness accounts I read for the research of this book was what happened on 9-11, you know, when the towers were burning, that people were coming down the stairs and they would literally say to each other, like, you first, no, you first, no, you first. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean... Uh, we've been, I think, maybe brainwashed a little bit by all those Hollywood disaster movies that we are really surprised when we see this kind of behavior in reality. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine. This week, our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim, will be talking to the historian Rutger Bredman about his much-buzzed new book, Humankind. It's about why, despite all the disasters and the chaos that have rocked our headlines in the past few years, humans are, at the heart of it, well-intentioned. Samir talks to Rutger about making the case for optimism in the time of Covid, what makes well-intentioned people turn towards hate and prejudice, and also about how he went about writing the story of the true-life version of The Lord of the Flies, which went viral after it was published in The Guardian earlier this month. Prospect is publishing a review of Humankind in the next issue of our magazine, which will be with subscribers in a couple of weeks, will all be online and hopefully may even be on a couple of reopened newsstands. But in the meantime, please do enjoy our interview with the man himself, Rutger Bredman. Rutger, thank you for joining us uh, on the Prospect interview. Thanks for having me. Um, does it feel strange to be publishing a manifesto for human optimism during the pandemic? Or, I don't know, maybe humanity's reaction has given you some cause for hope? I think so, yeah. I mean, to me, it feels quite timely. Uh, I know that there are quite a lot of stories in the news out there, you know, about people hoarding toilet paper and that kind of thing. But if you zoom out a little bit, then I think we can conclude that the vast majority of people has responded in a quite cooperative way. And that we've really seen, you know, so many groups of people, you know, starting uh, something on WhatsApp or Facebook to help neighbors or to protect the vulnerable elderly, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, I think it's a message we could use right now that there's a lot of good in humanity as well. I think people have tried to take it as an opportunity to, you know, express their almost like suppressed 
wish to do good. You know, people signing up to volunteer, yeah. as you said, and helping helping each other out. I mean, I personally, my own, uh, you know, street and community, have seen quite a lot of that. Yeah, I agree. There's like so many people suddenly having the feeling that they want to do something, right? They want to contribute. And uh, maybe this is especially the case because so many of us nowadays work in jobs that we don't really care about. You know, we've got recent evidence from two Dutch economists who did a big poll where they found that around 25% of people in the modern workforce think that their own job doesn't really add anything of value, you know, that they'll just... Uh, that they're just writing reports no one's ever going to read or sending emails to people they don't like. So then you have this crisis and you're like, God, I have to do something, right? I have to contribute. In a way, it's also a bit like when people say that you know, people don't give up their seats for other people on public transport anymore. Mm-hmm. But actually, in fact, when you when you do go, you, you find people falling over themselves to offer each other seats. Yeah. Um, or, 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 or that, um, you know, in general, when I've been out, people are obeying social distancing rules. There's a sort of acknowledgement that we all have to um, uh, cooperate in order to get through. Yeah, this. yeah. There's an old theory in Western culture that scientists call veneer theory, uh, which sort of says that civilization is only a thin veneer and that when there's a crisis so an epidemic or a natural disaster that people just become really selfish and they start looting and plundering and that kind of thing. But if you look at the science of this, you know, the sociology, we now have 600, 700 case studies of uh, natural disasters where sociologists have actually you know, really researched what happened and you see the complete opposite. Um, and so many classic historical cases as well i mean the titanic for example if you've seen the movie you, you'll assume that people you know went nuts but if you read the actual eyewitness accounts you'll see that people were quite calm and and helped each other uh i think one of the most striking eyewitness accounts i read for the research of this book was what happened on 9 11 you know when the towers were burning that people were coming down the stairs and they would literally say to each other like you first no you first no you first i mean it's just crazy i mean uh, we've been, I think, maybe brainwashed a little bit by all those Hollywood disaster movies that we are really surprised when we see this kind of behavior in reality. So uh, to dig a little deeper, so the book goes into you know the, the philosophical origins of the, the idea of man in the state of nature. Mm-hmm. And you, you take the two classic uh, philosophers, Hobbes and Rousseau, mm-hmm. uh, and they have their very different ideas um, of what man uh, in the state of nature is, is actually like. Could you just sort of draw out the comparison for us? Yeah. So Hobbes, the British philosopher, had this idea that in the state of nature, when we were still nomadic and gatherers, we lived lives that were, in his famous words, nasty, brutish, and short. And he, he said that there was some kind of war of all against all going on back then. Uh, but luckily, at some point, we invented this thing called civilization. We elected a kind of leviathan he called it a sort of an all-powerful ruler that kept us in check and so we entered a better and more peaceful era um now rousseau the french philosopher basically said the opposite he said no 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 when we lived in the state of nature as nomadic and togetherers life was pretty good you know it was relatively peaceful we lived quite healthy lives and everything went wrong when we invented civilization you know then we entered the era of hierarchy of wars we lived lives that were very unhealthy got all these infection diseases etc etc and usually Hobbes is seen as the realist and Rousseau is seen as the romantic you know the naive idealistic guy 
but while researching this book and you know going deeper and deeper in the archaeological research and the anthropological uh, research i started to get this feeling that wait a minute rousseau was maybe right about most of the things he he said and we've got to bear in mind as well that hobbes was had lived through the, the english civil war mm-hmm. and had seen so many disasters befall his country um also you know there are those stories about him being kind of panicky personality mm-hmm. he was afraid of the dark um uh, uh so the situations that people live through mm-hmm. um often affect their 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 worldview don't they yeah of course of course and you see that happening many times in history so another example here is william golding who wrote the famous novel lord of the flies which is i think just another expression of this veneer theory uh, you drop kids from you know perfect boarding schools you know very good boarding schools in britain but you drop them on, a, on an island and they turn into savages and monsters and they you know at the end of the novel three of the kids are dead now if you look at william golding's own personality and his experiences you know he was pretty much traumatized by the second world war and he was an alcoholic prone to depression you know he uh, he wasn't a very nice guy he also experimented on his kids as a teacher uh, uh, in school so he, he liked to set up his students uh, his pupils against each other and yeah when you sort of understand that about his personality then you start to understand that this is the kind of guy that writes the Lord of the Flies but you investigated also you know as it were the real Lord of the Flies or a case uh, which happened in real life and the outcomes were, were slightly different weren't yeah they? slightly well that's uh, to put it mildly yeah. uh, I just wondered while researching this book whether it has ever happened right uh, has there ever been a real lord of the flies somewhere in at some point in history so i basically started on this journey through lots of newspaper archives and at some point i discovered that yes it had actually happened in 1966 uh, in tonga which is an island group in the pacific ocean where there were six kids from an anglican boarding school who were just bored with school. They didn't like the school meals that they were, you know, they just thought, you know, we want to go on an adventure. That's what they did. Uh, But in the first night, there was a big storm. And so they drifted then for eight days and then shipwrecked on a small island called Ata. And somehow they managed to survive there for 50 months. And, you know, this is a really extraordinary tale that's all about human resilience and the power of friendship. Because actually... They're still friends up until this day. So it's very much the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. So they didn't end up uh, worshipping a pig's head on a stick? <laughs> no. No, what actually happened is they cooperated really well. They worked in teams of two. Uh, two to tend to the garden, two to uh, keep control of the fire, two to be on the lookout. Um, they uh, ended up in fights sometimes. I mean, that happened. But then what they would do is that one would go to one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island, cool off a little, and come back and say sorry. Now, I mean, I'm obviously not saying this is a scientific experiment or anything. The only thing I'm, I'm saying is that uh, if millions of kids around the globe still have to read Lord of the Flies, then maybe we also got to tell them about the one time that we know of that real kids ship- shipwrecked on a real island, and it turned out very differently. So why are we so attracted to stories about um, our own depravity? Is there something mm-hmm. about... Um, uh, human nature that's attracted to those stories in some way. I think there are a couple of reasons. So I'd like to focus on two here. In the first place, you've got the negativity bias. So evil is just stronger, 
right? It makes a stronger impression on us than the good. And there's probably some evolutionary reason for that. If you are a nomadic and togetherer, it is better to be afraid once too often of a spider or a snake because that helps you to survive, you know? Too much fear is maybe less dangerous than not enough fear in such an environment. Um, the other reason is I think that a cynical view of human nature has always been in the interest of those in power. Because if people can't trust each other, then they need hierarchy. They need kings and generals and monarchs, etc., to to uh, yeah, keep each other in check. If you have a more hopeful view of human nature, if you believe that most people are actually pretty decent, then you can move to a very different kind of society, much more egalitarian society. So it may sound like, oh, this guy has written this happy clappy book about the power of kindness. But if you really think it through, you realize that a hopeful view of human nature is quite subversive and quite dangerous to those at the top. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I was interested in the book you, you take on uh, one of, you know, some classic examples that are often cited mm -hmm. uh, 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 of human depravity, not just fictional. So there's the famous case in 1964 in New York of Kitty Genovese, the woman who was uh, killed, and the idea, uh, as the legend has it, you know, bystanders walked past. I don't know what was it, thirty-eight, thirty-nine people yeah. walked past, and no one, no one did anything. Um, but you sort of dug into the the fact of it, and it wasn't wasn't quite as it seemed. No, this is another example of a story, a very cynical story that goes completely viral and that everyone remembers and is still quoted in the textbook of millions of psychology students around the globe. And indeed, it's about this woman, Kitty Genovese, who was murdered at the beginning of the 60s in New York. And supposedly 37 people had seen it happening and no one did anything. You know, no one even called the police. And for psychologists, it was sort of the perfect example of what they call the bystander effect. So the bystander effect, the theory is that when something happens, an emergency, someone's drowning or attacks in the street, and a lot of people see it happening, then the chances are that you will be helped, you know, it's not not very high because people are like, you know, it's not my responsibility. Someone else can do that. Um, and yeah, we believe that for decades. And, and it's still, as I said, in the textbooks of a lot of students. But now we've got a new generation of psychologists who 
don't rely on lab experiments, but on real empirical experiment, uh, evidence from the real world. So, for example, uh, CCTV footage. We live in cities these days, uh, big brother cities where there are cameras everywhere. I mean, uh, there's a lot of downsides uh, to that. But there's also one upside is that you can actually study the evidence of how people behave in real life. And so there's one psychologist, Marie Lindegaard is her name, and she built this huge database where she just looked at real life examples of emergencies, people drowning, people being attacked in the streets, etc. And she found that in an astonishing 90% of all cases in London, Cape Town, uh, Amsterdam and uh, uh, Copenhagen, people actually help each other. So it's a sort of a whole research tradition, libraries full of books or, or lots of books actually, uh, yeah, could go through the strata because, uh, yeah, it's sort of the opposite bystander effect. Actually, the more people see something happening, the more likely it is that you will be helped because people find support in each other. And is it sort of uh, a human urge to, you know, to be a hero as well, you know, to sort of, uh, there are, if we look at all our myths and stories and uh, they are about... Uh, self-sacrifice and helping others you know there is there is a human ideal that we like to live out in our in the stories we tell ourselves that's a really interesting question so i sort of have a double take on this if you ask people who who've done something really heroic you know sort of basically risk their own lives to save someone else and you ask them do you feel like a hero they always say no no, I don't feel like that. I interviewed a couple of like real heroes who, you know, risked their own lives to save someone who was in this case drowning. Um, and uh, these people never say, yeah, I feel like a hero. They are like, no, it was just a natural thing to do. It's sort of, I don't know, my brain or my body took over and I just did what had to be done. Um, my view on human nature is that actually real heroes sort of who do something that is like genuinely hard to do are a bit scarce. But then, then I'm talking about something different. Because on the one hand, human beings are one of the friendliest species in the animal kingdom. But on the other hand, friendliness is sometimes exactly the problem, right? Is that it can become groupish behavior or tribal behavior. And then people find it hard to go against the group. And uh, this is, I, th I think, the paradox of the book is that, on the, yeah, I emphasize that people have evolved to cooperate. But then on, on the other hand, that's sometimes exactly the problem. And real progress often comes from real heroes who are willing to be unfriendly and to go against the status quo and are willing to be nasty and difficult, etc. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of the, the paradox that I wrestle with in the book. Yeah, because in the second half, you, you, you talk about, you know, you know where does you know, the history of the 20th century, we, we know that, you know, mass killings and genocides um, uh, you know, epitomized by by the Holocaust, of course, mm -hmm. um, terrible, terrible things. We we don't, you know, just last week in the news, we there's a story of, um, you know, a hospital in Afghanistan being attacked, mm -hmm. and you know, w w women and newborn babies being murdered in cold blood for seemingly sectarian or political or religious or whatever reason mm -hmm. it, it, we can we can ascribe to it. So there does seem to be the human, um, you know, human beings can sink to real real depths, and I think as you acknowledge. But that, what I was really interested in is what you were talking about there, the idea that maybe to protect your own family or group identity or nation, i.e. a sort of um, a positive um, uh, group identity, often leads people to do terrible things because in some ways they think they're doing yeah. good. This is a really dark truth about our species is that often we do the most horrible things in the name of the good, right? We do it in the name of comradeship. 
and of friendship and of loyalty or sometimes of of ideology because we so much we pretend to be creating a better world or something like that um that's that's a, as i said it's a really dark truth about our species what i'm just saying is that the veneer theory the idea that there's a nazi or a monster just below the surface in each and every one of us that's wrong we are capable of horrible things but it takes a long road, you know, to to make sort of people who have evolved to be friendly, to make them into very violent creatures. Violence is very hard for us, actually. Most people can't do it. We know that most soldiers throughout history have, have not been able to fire their gun, for example. They couldn't do it. You draft a soldier and it's very hard for, the, for this person to become violent. You have to condition them. You have to brainwash them. You have to give them access to technology for example so that they can just push a button on an artillery device and have ex have an explosion far away so i mean there are ways to overcome this but it's not easy for us to be violent you talk about the stanford prison experiment and philip zimbardo mm -hmm. you know it's often again cited as a, as a case where um it seemed incredibly easy that that people would just turn to turn to the dark side and um but again, that that's something you you know you do bunk slightly. Yeah, I used to believe this as well. You know, I had written about the Stanford Prison Experiment and used it in lectures, and I thought it was this fascinating case of how peaceful and healthy and just normal, nice students from the sixties, and they called themselves you know pacifists, and they were like these these friendly flower power hippies turned into monsters, you know, in just a couple of days. Um, I used to believe that, but recently the archives have opened up and there's one French sociologist who's really done path-breaking work here. His name is Thibault Le Texier. He's written a book about this in French that sadly has not been published in English. And the title of the book is The History of a Lie. And that's really what it is. I think the Stanford Prison Experiment can be described as a lie or a hoax because even though it has ended up in all the textbooks of the psychology students, and it's been so famous for 50 years, we now know that these guards, you know, these student guards, were instructed by the researchers from day one to behave as sadistically as possible. Many of them said that's, that they didn't want to do it, you know, that, and like, uh, that's not me, you know, let's just play cards, let's, I don't know, have a good time together, make music. But then the researchers said, and especially Philip Zimbardo, uh, the, the man who became really famous with his experiment, he said, no, you got to do this because we need these results. Because if we get the right results, then we can go to the press and say, prisons are horrible environments and we need to reform the whole American prison system. And that's when some of the students went along, you know, in this whole theater thing and how it became so famous and already a couple of days after the experiment zimbardo went to the press and said look what's happened you know i just have this extraordinary experiment blah 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 and somehow again cynical stories and, and these kind of experiments even though you know scientifically they're they're crap uh they they tend to spread like a virus right and uh and be remembered for decades it's interesting that his aim was ultimately prison reform because you, you, you do talk about uh, the Norwegian model of, of prisons and the idea that your environment shapes your behaviour to a large extent. Uh, does that, that tend to support your theory? Yeah, I mean, the book is all about the very simple idea, but I think also powerful idea, that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if you assume that most people are selfish, then you'll design a society with institutions that bring out the worst in each and every one of us. If you turn this around, you can go to a very different kind of world. 
Now, it's, it's quite easy, or easier at least, to do this with your friends or your co-workers or, I don't know, your, your citizens in, in, uh, in your nation or democracy. But it becomes harder when people are farther away from you. So the most radical example in the book is indeed of the prison system in Norway. Now, if you go to a prison in Norway, many people around the globe will say, These, this, is not, this is not a prison, right? It doesn't look like a prison. Bastoy, for example, one of the most famous examples is an island where the, the inmates who have done horrible things, right? Killed other people, tortured, raped, etc. These are not nice guys. Um, but they have the freedom to, yeah, basically uh, farm a little bit, work together, build their own self-sustaining community, go to the cinema, go out skiing. They, sometimes they have their own jobs on the mainland. Um, they make music together. There's a music studio with their own music label called Criminal Records. It's really uh, very weird and strange. But then you look at the science behind it, at the statistics, and turns out this is the most effective prison in the world. So criminologists are really interested in the so-called recidivism rate, the chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And that number is nowhere as low as in Norway. While if you look at, for example, the US, uh, that has like real prisons in the sense, places you don't want to be, it has the highest recidivism rate. So in the US, you have institutions funded by the taxpayers that are like universities for more crime. You go in there for a small drug offense and you come in, come out like a very damaged individual, like a hardened criminal. In Norway, you've got the opposite. You've got people coming in there as criminals and coming out as citizens. What, what would we prefer? Yeah, in your previous book, you're... Utopia for realists, you have other sort of policy proposals which might, you know, as the title indicates, be thought of as, as, as utopian, um, but also sort of in a way tie in with your idea of this sort of positive view of human nature. Mm -hmm. One of them is the idea of open borders, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that, um, we sh you know, migration should be encouraged and seen, and seen as normal. Now, a lot of people uh, might argue, or some people might argue that... Um, uh, you know that will test the limits of people's capacity for goodness mm -hmm. because you know e even with actually relatively low levels of migration into Europe um, has caused you know huge anxieties mm -hmm. backlash a populist right wing backlash um, and um, it, there does something see something innate in us with that sort of group identity yeah. that when we see others how do how do we get across how do we bridge that gap so as I was writing my book I was sort of as you, as you are these days when you write a sort of a science book, you're always worried about the question, will this hold up, you know, five or 10 years from now? It's, if you have this question in your mind all the time, like, can people still read this book 10 years from now? You sort of, you don't want to rely on a lot of new fancy studies anymore. But what I could rely on was a really old research tradition uh, in psychology uh, uh, around the so-called contact hypothesis. And the idea here is very simple, is that the best medicine against hate, racism, and prejudice is just contact, bringing people together. We've got hundreds and hundreds of case studies, you know, from around the globe that this is, it works, you know? It's, it's relatively hard uh, to hate someone who's standing in front of you, you know, that you're gonna do, do something uh, together with. If someone's far away, then it's, you know, it's easy to hate abstractions. It's much more difficult to hate people, you know, who are, uh, looking you in the eye or in front of you. So I think this is just a simple message of that whole research tradition is that when you have immigration, and I think there are strong moral and, and economic arguments in favor of at least opener borders, um, 
you have to think about how do you bring people actually in contact with each other. And this probably starts at schools, right? So often we have these segregated schools, uh, you know, black schools and white schools, et cetera, et cetera. And so we start creating the problem from day one. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple message, obviously, that contact matters, uh, but it's easy to forget it as well. Yeah, I always think that it's an almost universal experience when you when you go on a holiday. You will talk to somebody who's just recently been on a holiday and they'll say, yeah, there's such nice people out there. Hmm. Um, and there's sort of level of surprise in a way that, but maybe just people are nicer yeah. <laughs> in general, yeah. even in our own environment than uh, uh, than you think. Yeah. And it isn't a sort of hospitable culture or, or, or whatever, yeah. but it's more something. Um, it's strange, isn't it? You know, if you ask someone for the you ask someone for the time, they'll tell you the time. You ask yeah, them for directions, yeah, yeah. they'll try and direct. Our them. life is so full of, I like to call it the banality of the good. Right, we're surrounded by the good most of the time. It's the water we swim in, and. Um, the tragedy is that evil is just stronger. It is. It makes a bigger impression on us. You know, we talked about the negativity bias. And so the only way for the good to, to win is with overwhelming force of majority. And this is the same with, you see this in contact theory. So we know that contact works. Uh, but we also know that one sort of negative impression, one sort of negative experience with someone from another group, you know, from some another ethnicity or something like that, has a has a much bigger impact than than 100 nice experiences. So how, how does it then still work? Well, because there's just so much more good out there. You talked about contact theory there. Now that we're, we're in a world where we can't really contact each other in the same way that mm-hmm. we, we used to, we're more, we're more, we're more isolated. Um, you know, what can we do even, you know, within our, within our own homes um, to um, keep up the idea of, you know, contact with other mm. people and thinking about um, compassion for others? Yeah. You know, I, I really worry about this. Um, human beings are designed for face-to-face interactions. You know, by evolution, our bodies have been created in such a way that it's it becomes really easy to trust someone who's standing in front of you. Uh, if you look, for example, what makes human beings unique, we're the only species in the animal kingdom that blush, right? It's pretty fascinating. All the other primates and mammals don't blush. Maybe a couple of parrots, there's some evidence for that. But apart from that, we're really unique here. We involuntarily give away our feelings sometimes, and that helps us to establish trust. What's also unique about human beings is our eyes. So we've got white around our eyes, you know, our sclera are white, which means that we can follow each other's gazes. If you look at all the other primates, you know, and there are 200 primate species in total, uh, you know, from bonobos to orangutans and you name it, they all have dark around their eyes. So it's much more difficult to follow their gazes. Uh, they're like poker players wearing shades, which is obviously not really good, you know, if you want to establish trust. Um, but all these kind of things, they they work, obviously, they work the best if you can actually, you know, be in close physical proximity to each other. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something really to worry about during this p- pandemic, because uh, we've been just been designed for for connection, for touch, for, for feeling each other, et cetera, et cetera. And now we need to find ways to still do this in a way, uh, but also stop the virus from spreading. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll be having to think about that um, uh, in the next uh, year or two. But thank you so much for, for chatting to us. It's a really interesting book. And um, yeah, a nice, a nice bit of positivity in uh, what can seem to be uh, a pretty uh, dark time. So thank you so much, Rutger. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
that's all from us. Thank you for joining us this week on the Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please do leave us a rating and a review. Rebecca Liu is our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.